it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Hope you had a sensational weekend. Brian Kilmeade Show coming your direction. 1 866 408 7669. We're going to be joined by Benjamin Netanyahu, the longtime Prime Minister of Israel. Maybe the future, too. Mike Rogers, bottom of the hour, Senate Select Intelligence Committee uh, member. And uh, Benjamin Netanyahu with a brand new book out. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's definitely comprehensive. It's his autobiography. He talks about everything from his family to his brother uh, who uh, lost his life in the, um, in the victory in Entebbe. Uh, so let's uh, bring in the former prime minister and maybe future prime minister of Israel. Uh, Ms. Prime Minister Netanyahu, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Good to talk to you, Brian. So first off, you. can you? Uh, uh, when did you realize this would be the right time to put out your biography? <laughs> when I went into opposition, you can't really run uh, the country. You can't really write a biography when you're a, a prime minister or a finance minister. So I wrote all my books. When I was uh, in opposition, that's the only time that you can do it. But, but you know, since I was uh, working very hard to bring down uh, the, the present government, I wrote it actually sometimes in, while I was in the plenary of our parliament, the Knesset, in endless budget debates or uh, careening in the roads of the Galilee while I was going to political meetings. It's crazy. Uh, you've written books, so you know how odd that is, but I enjoyed it. I remember the first time I saw you was the... Uh... Uh, Persian Gulf War, and so Saddam Hussein was sending Scud missiles into Israel, and I thought you were so composed and calm as uh, you know these. We don't know what these Scuds were capable of, what they were, uh, what was in those uh, rockets themselves. And I saw you were really the voice of Israel back then. Did you always have aspirations, even in the early '90s, of becoming prime minister? No, actually, uh, I I had no idea and no conception that I would enter public life, but I did so after. Uh, my older brother, um, who was uh, the commander of our, the special unit that we both served in, died while rescuing uh, hostages in the heart of Africa in Antebbe, in perhaps the most celebrated uh, uh, rescue mission in modern times. So uh, that changed my life. It steered it to a um, direction of public service and the battle against international terrorism. Uh, and from there I was... Uh, I was asked to become Israel at a very young age to become Israel's deputy ambassador in Washington and then ambassador to the UN. Uh, it was only after that that I seriously contemplated entering politics, which in Israel is not a genteel sport. It is not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> so I, I entered it out of a sense of mission, and I meant it in a sense of mission to protect uh, the Jewish state, to give the Jewish people uh, a secure future and prosperous future, but also to uh, to coalesce the forces of freedom, uh, to make my contribution to coalescing the forces of freedom uh, around the world to preserve our common civilization, which is always at risk. What uh, what does the fact that you went to school here in America, what, what kind of perspective do you have being that you were here and lived here for a while when it comes to going back to Israel and running that country? 
Well, look, I, I think the most uh, uh, the most important thing is the uh, understanding that America is our indispensable ally. It doesn't mean it's our only ally, but uh, the alliance we have with the American people uh, is like no other because they recognize that Israel in many ways is the front line of Western civilization and the heart of uh, of a very unstable Middle East, that we're fighting common enemies, especially Iran, that chants death to Israel, death to America, and Israel is really the force uh, that stands in their way, and I've made it, I would say, the cardinal issue of my premiership. But the other thing that I got in America was an appreciation for individual initiative, for enterprise, for free markets, and that in many ways shaped my decision to enact in Israel a free market revolution that made Israel one of the uh, most developed and prosperous countries on earth uh, because we unleashed the, the inherent genius uh, in our people uh, to, um, uh, to enterprise, to startups, thousands and thousands of startups which are helping uh, countries around the world. It's, uh, uh, in many ways, that's an American influence without a doubt. No question, but you probably do it better. You streamlined, have less institutional blocks. And I remember picking that up from Dan Senor's book. He wrote Innovation Nation uh, the time he spent over there. I also, in reading Jared Kushner's book, saw that you slept in his bedroom when you, when you were coming through here. You know his dad quite well, correct? Yes, yes. I, I spent some time, uh, I think, in his house when he was a teenager. That's correct. Right. So what, how, would, how did that partnership work? Well, I, I think the, the larger issue was how to deal with uh, changing American administrations. I had, um, obviously, my differences with, uh, with President Obama, uh, whom I respected but fundamentally disagreed with, on, primarily on the question of the relationship between power and peace. He believed that peace brings power. I believe that power brings peace. Uh, and he, I think he, he had a, a great appreciation for soft power. And I always thought that soft power is great, but if it's not backed by hard power, it's largely useless because we, lo- we live in a very cruel world. And, you know, uh, Martin Luther King said that the arc of history bends towards justice. Well, maybe so, but it's a brittle arc, and it is continually pounded by the forces of darkness. And unless you're very strong and willing to defend your values and your survival and your future, uh, you can lose. You wrote some biographies, uh, I think, including uh, one of, uh, uh, of uh, Lincoln. And Lincoln spoke of the better angels of our nature, but even he had to win a decisive battle in America's bloodiest war to ensure that the better angels of our nature uh, triumph. So I had a, a difference of view with uh, with President Obama on this. Primarily, it was reflected in our different views on Iran, the Iran nuclear deal, and on some other matters. I had less of a difference, to put it mildly, with President Trump when he came into office and his team. And that enabled us to actually get peace through strength, because for 72 years, Israel had two peace treaties with Arab states, and for a quarter of a century, we had none. Yet when we applied this new approach that I believed in, we had four peace treaties with Arab states in four months. And that, I think, is what's significant not only for Israel and many of our Arab neighbors, but for, the, for, for history, for the future of the Middle East and for the future of peace in the world. And, and part of the reason, for, first off, on President Obama, uh, you came here and you spoke about this Iranian deal. And I, I can't even pretend that there's even another side to it. It's the stupidest thing ever. It's so unbalanced and they're so untrustworthy. And the fact that we're talking to them is just uh, is, I'm beside myself. I can imagine what it's like for you. But do you think it was personal? 
Do you think there was a personal uh, dislike that he had for you? Because he seemed to be actually working for your op- for your ouster with the opposition. Is that correct? Uh, well, he wasn't the first. I mean, Clinton um, did it. Uh, and, you know, you couldn't dislike Clinton because when I ended up uh, winning on the first the first time that he tried that, he called me up. I write it in, in my book. He called me up and he says, Bibi, I got to hand it to you. Uh, you, we we try to knock you down, and you beat us fair and square. That's the <laughs> that's the Clinton charm of being so uh, politically incorrect that it got him <laughs> through a lot of minefields. But I thought we're not supposed to meddle and meddle in other people's elections. Yeah, well, well, uh, I think they expect other people not to meddle in American elections, but uh, they certainly meddled in mine, and I, I took it in stride. But uh, I think that. Uh, I think that you asked me if it's a personal thing. Yes. Well, it wasn't on my side. I mean, if uh, if President Obama would have uh, uh, gotten out of the Iran deal, would have recognized uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital, moved the embassy there, and uh, uh, and recognized our sovereignty and the strategic Golan Heights, I would have lauded him. But he didn't. And as far as I was concerned, at least, it was a policy difference. And uh, when it came to things that could threaten the existence of the one and only Jewish state after the travails and odyssey of the Jewish people through the worst uh, horrors of history, uh, well, I, I, I had to state my case. And I, if that meant going to a joint session of the American Congress and speaking out against the dangerous Iran deal, then so be it. And if it also meant uh, being the, uh, you know, taking the brunt of many personal attacks, right. uh, so be it too. I am here to defend my country. And I will do whatever is necessary to defend it. You, you seem to. You knew Donald Trump before he took over, and and you do. You guys seem pretty tight when he was in power here. How would you describe your relationship with President Trump? Well, on, on, first of all, it, it produced the best uh, years of the uh, Israeli-American alliance. That's Abraham that, Accords, yeah. especially. The Abraham Accords. It's historic peace treaties that uh, were begun before that. Actually, were begun by my speech to Congress. While I was speaking, again, this is something I described in my book, while I was speaking in Congress, uh, at those very moments, my staff got calls from Arab leaders in the Gulf who said, we can't believe what we're seeing. We can't believe that your prime minister is willing to stand up uh, against a sitting American president on something that he believes is wrong because they didn't do it. They spoke in back rooms, they spoke in corridors, they spoke in hushed tones, but here I was, you know, before the entire world. And they said, if that's the case, we want to cement our ties. And that led to secret meetings uh, that I had with Arab leaders, uh, one of them, believe it or not, on a yacht in the wow. Red Sea. At Who was that? Helicopter I had. Uh, who is that? Well, that's the next biography. <laughs> but, uh, but it was... It led to the foundations of the Abraham Accords because, again, it's peace through strength. It's peace from power. Uh, and uh, and very much uh, I had worked on that for many years. I had the, the Mossad in contact with their security agencies. But the breakthrough came when I actually met the leaders. And I said, you know, it's high time that we forged a strategic alliance with us. And it took me a while, by the way, to present, to persuade uh President Trump and his staff, but they were persuaded. And once they joined in, uh, we could we could finish this. And I I, I think that uh, it's to our uh, you know our joint credit that we enacted uh, these uh, these tremendous uh, 
uh, peace accords. But I think also it's, uh, it shows that if an American president and an Israeli uh, prime minister work hand-in-hand to achieve uh, peace through strength, you actually get both. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, our guest, I'm sure everyone recognize, uh, uh, recognizes um, his voice, and he's, he's been on the national stage for a while. As you know, President Trump came out and, to paraphrase, said the uh, American Jewish community has to get their act together because they don't care about Israel. And uh, Republicans uh, have done more. He has done more for Israel than any other president. Is that anti-Semitic? No, I don't think so. I think I think that uh, first of all, it's true that he has done an, an enormous amount for Israel, but I think it reflects a, a certain frustration in the fact that people vote on other issues as well. And you know, I'm not going to get into the American political divide, but in in general, you know, Israel enjoys the support of uh, of the American Jewish community. Not all of it, because some of the uh, uh, some in the Jewish community join the progressives who are the radical progressives who are not only against. Israel. They're against, in my opinion, uh, uh, our common values, American and Israeli values. But on the whole, you'd be, uh, this is surprising for many people, the support for Israel <coughs> has been fairly constant and, and strong in uh, among the democratic public, not the political class. But it's uh, overshadowed by the fact that over the last uh, decade or so, support for Israel among Republicans has skyrocketed. So there's that's where the gap is. The gap is not so much that support for Israel has gone down among the Democrats, but it's gone up among the Republicans. Uh, and, uh, of course, we welcome that uh, bipartisan support, and the more we get it, the best. So, so I'm, I'm not let me just bounce this off you exactly. He says the Jewish people in the United States either don't like Israel or don't care about Israel. There's people in this country that are Jewish no longer love Israel. I'll tell you, the evangelical Christians love Israel more than the Jews in this country. And he's getting a lot of Jewish leaders here criticizing that. Um, he told that to Ami Magazine, an Orthodox Jewish publication. He said, so basically, what what he said is that does that sound to you as something that the Jewish community should take offense with? Look, I think that uh, that the great majority of the American Jewish community supports Israel and supports Israel wholeheartedly. It always has. There are those who have gone to the you know to the to the edge of uh, radicalism who don't support Israel because they don't support, in my opinion, basic uh, basic values that shape our our common civilization. They don't support Israel, and in my opinion, they also don't support many of the things that America needs. But they're the minority, a very strong, a very small minority. The overwhelming majority of American Jews wholeheartedly and unreservedly support Israel. It is also true that among the evangelical community, we've enjoyed enormous support. Right. I've, uh, I've uh, expressed my appreciation. People don't know that there are historic roots that go back centuries for this uh, for this uh, uh, support of uh, uh, of uh, believing Christians around the world, and and part of the reason is that they see in the rebirth of Israel the realization of the biblical prophecies of the ingathering of the exiles and the rebuilding of of uh, well, it's the old Jerusalem. Um, America's often said that we are the new Jerusalem, and and you are in one sense, but the, rebuilding the old Jerusalem is not bad either. So many many uh, evangelicals see uh, in the rise of Israel a vindication of the biblical prophecy, and it really is a parable for for all humanity. And it says that if you are sufficiently determined, if you have the resolve uh, and the will and the faith, then a free people can, 
can uh, overcome the ho- most horrible odds in history and uh, and create right. and shape a future, uh, a wondrous future. And that's what Israel has happened. That's what ha- has happened in Israel, Brian. Israel has one-tenth of one percent of the world's population, and yet it is ranked by the University of Pennsylvania annual poll of 20,000 opinion leaders as the eighth most powerful country in the world. You, that is not just... Yeah. I, that's not just a, a rational... Uh, well, you guys know how to fight and you all serve. By the way, if you want to get BB's book, and I know you do, bbmystory.com, because there's going to be more. He's going to be running again for office. hard to imagine him not being able to get there. And final thought, the President of the United States is kind of vilifying and looking to isolate Saudi Arabia. Do you think that's a good move? 20 seconds? No. Uh, I think, uh, you know, all, all these countries are not perfect. That's an understatement. Uh, but I think that in the larger uh, array of forces, we have to uh, galvanize a, a, a working front against Iran. Iran threatens the United States. Iran gotcha. wants to de- develop ballistic missiles against you armed with nuclear weapons. Saudi Arabia and Israel, led gotcha. by Israel, are the forces that will confront Iran in the Middle East. Pick it up, BB. My story. It's a great book, uh, Mr. Prime Minister. Thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. Good to talk to you. Same here. Back in a moment. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The Fox News Rundown: a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day, featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Went a little long with Benjamin Netanyahu, and man, we have a lot more to go. Hopefully we'll get him back on his book tour. There's no doubt about it, he's going to be back in power. And the one thing that I would say that we I could have won 20 different ways, but there's no way Israel will ever let Iran get a nuclear weapon. So the best thing Iran could do was sign this agreement for them. But for some reason, they're not. They've also killed over 200 of their citizens, most of women. And where is the American... Any female organization in this, Randy Weingarten, why is she talking about Iran? Why isn't the first lady talking about Iranian women? Why isn't any, Nancy Pelosi, why is it okay to assassinate him? Because they want to get this new, they want to get this nuke deal done. Wow. Uh, we see what they're doing with their kamikaze drones in Ukraine, killing innocent Ukrainians. They sold them or gave them to the Russians. And word is, some of their elite fighters are now fighting for the Russian army because the Russians don't know how and don't want to fight. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. When we come back, Mike Rogers. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Do you think it's time for the U.S. to rethink its relationship with Saudi Arabia? Yes. And by the way, let's get straight where I went. I didn't go to one about oil. I went about making sure that we made sure that we weren't going to walk away from the Middle East. 
and what was going on. You but, would. But we should, we should, and I am, uh, in the process when the, when the uh, uh, this House and Senate gets back, they're going to have to, uh, there's going to be some consequences for what they've done with Russia. So what are those consequences? And since when do we, do we, been, is, has Joe Biden been around since the 1970s? We're telling OPEC what to do. If they don't do it, we're going to punish them. I mean, really? Saudi Arabia is the problem? OPEC plus is the problem? We were a rival to them. We would actually be the swing nation, swing oil producing nation. But the president elected not to do that. And don't reconfigure uh, why you went over to the Middle East. It wasn't to say you're giving up. It was to start reestablishing relations with Saudi Arabia, you call the pariah nation. Mike Rogers might feel like that. That is right, or he might want to challenge that. He's the former chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence uh, and the former congressman, also uh, FBI guy. Uh, Mike Rogers, welcome back. Hey, Brian, it's always good to be back. And man, are you right? And the president saying that it wasn't about a trip for production, increase in production of oil is absolute nonsense. He didn't exactly. like the timing. He said, I looked at you, you don't have to cut now. Why don't you just wait? He didn't like the timing of the cut. Yeah. And by the way, he asked him to wait till after the election, which tells you everything you need to know about what he's worried about. You can't cause high prices uh, and, then, uh, and then go over to, to beg Saudi Arabia to get you out of trouble. Here's a couple of things we need to understand about the Saudi relationship. This administration has completely screwed up. The relationship. I'm not saying that they're our best friends and allies ever, uh, but they have been helpful in the war on terror and other things, and they're an important geopolitical factor in the Middle East. So those are things you need to keep in mind as you try to figure out this relationship. But they they immediately stopped uh, supporting their effort to defend themselves against the Houthi rebels, who, by the way, are it's a proxy fight between Iran, yes. who is feeding them money and weapons and training. And by the way, the missiles that were firing into Saudi Arabia, guess what? Stamped, you know, made in, made in uh, Tehran. And so we, w- we immediately walked away from that. Uh, we put a lot of pressure on them for other things, like the, even the Kosovo thing, which is bad. Don't get me wrong, it is. Uh, but there's a better way to handle it than poke your finger in their chest. And then they came out and said, we're going to negotiate with the Iranians again. And the last deal is that gave them the money to send missiles to the Houthi rebels to fire missiles into Saudi Arabia. So you you can't just say that those things didn't have consequence uh, for the United States in the relationship. And what he did is drive the Saudis. Remember when we cut off arms sales, drove the Saudis, who are trying to defend themselves from the Iranians, into the arms of the Russians. All of that was uh, was avoidable except for the bad decisions of this administration. And then to come back and say, well, well now we're going to punish them. Uh, well, I guarantee you that's not going to help uh, help the relationship. Uh, and I just don't know why we would string. Our Arab League partners uh, have been not always great, but I guarantee you they've been 100 times better than the Iranians have been in that region. We don't get and the Abraham Accords of that Saudi Arabia, uh, and the Abraham Accords have done more for Middle East peace than anything since Jimmy Carter – uh, and Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. But I want you to hear what the former ambassador to Russia under Barack Obama, Michael McCall, uh, said, cut 34. Saudi Arabia, not a perfect ally, but they're a key national security partner against Iran. That's the greatest threat in the region. When the president goes out and calls him a pariah or when the Houthi rebels bomb 
you know, the Saudis and UAE to jeopardize the Abraham Accords, uh, and which, by the way, are proxies of Iran, it sets a really bad tone. Uh, and I think it makes the world more dangerous where we're pushing them uh, to Russia or, say, China. Yeah, I mean, that's Michael McCall, the, uh, the, the, Republic, the Texas Republican, not the Michael McFaul, my bad. But, but basically... We got to play chess, more, Mike. We're, we're not at, we're not asking having a dinner party. It's a bad neighborhood, and the, for the last eighty years, we've been better off dealing with them on our side than having them go to China and Russia. Completely, there is no advantage for them, for for the United States and our long-term national security interests or economic interests. By the way, there's no good reason to drive the Saudis. Uh, to the Russians or the Chinese, and that's exactly what this administration because they are they want this Iran deal so but they look at it as a legacy issue, uh, and they're not they can't quite get out of their own way to understand the dangerous ramifications of getting a deal with Iran on their nuclear program that wouldn't pass the Senate, right? If it passed the Senate, this probably would be a better sign it's a good deal, but they can't do that, so they won't do it. And now they're causing all of these problems in the Middle East. Uh, I argue it's dangerous, not only their attitude, uh, but the way they're going about this is just it is causing rifts that we just don't need and don't have to have. So we understand that there were dozens of kamikaze Iranian drones that the Russians flew into Kiev. They knocked out uh, they knocked out some. But for the most part, a lot of them landed terrorizing that country because they're losing on the ground. Iran gave them, look, we got Turkish uh, drones. We gave them to the Ukrainians. So Iran did this, but yet we still have not cut off relations with them. There was a report over the weekend that Iranian fighters are seen fighting the Ukrainian army. What is our leverage in this area? What, what, what uh, strings could we pull? Well, listen, we could reengage Europe in the notion that Iran is a bad actor in the region uh, and we ought to double down on uh, making their lives a little miserable economically, and we still have room to do that, uh, and stop negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran. Stop. Uh, they just completely pull out of that thing. Tell them we're not dealing with you until you get your act together, uh, if ever, uh, and really start to grind down. The other thing we should be doing in, in just as much and as often as we can is supporting the very courageous Iranian women who are coming out and protesting the regime. Uh, that is an opportunity for people who believe uh, in democracies uh, yeah. to stand up for the people who are risking their lives. I and mean, they're getting beaten and jailed, and but they're doing it because they believe in freedom. Uh, and I don't hear much out of this administration. I mean, I, I hear a quote every once in a while that, oh, it's a good thing. Uh, but this is something we should be all in on. You know, it's so interesting, uh, Mike, when you were there, uh, when you were chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee, Barack Obama was president. And he yeah. came out and said one of his regrets, and he said he made a mistake, was not speaking out for those protests. These are bigger. Uh, these are bigger protests. It's got them totally off their axis. Uh, I understand there's now uh, there's all types of unrest, even in their prisons. And they've killed over 200 people of their own, uh, 200 members of their, of their own citizens. Barack Obama gave Joe Biden a hall pass on this. Why is he not answering it? Because the, this, this, the same security people that were in the uh, Obama administration negotiating the deal are now in the uh, Biden administration negotiating the deal, and they cannot 
see the forest through the trees. And they want that so badly. I can tell you, Brian, as the guy who was uh, chairman of the intelligence committee at the time, I kept going to the White House and telling them, you guys are making a big mistake, not only on the deal, but you're making a mistake not supporting uh, the folks who are coming out in the street uh, and risking their lives to protest the regime, which would be in the world's best interest if that regime fell, by the way. And we don't have to do anything untoward. All we have to do is give them support uh, and encouragement and let the world know uh, that they're with them. And that is that gives people courage uh, in a place like Iran. And so the same people are doing the same thing. They're trying to negotiate almost the same doggone deal. Uh, and right. the, the things that they turned off during the Obama administration that uh, our defense intelligence services had going to try to make sure they didn't get a nuclear weapon, they just flipped the switch and turned things off was, uh, I mean, the, when that ever becomes unclassified, I think the world will get sick to their stomach. And I just see the same kind of behavior. They're can, can you explain that again? I, Congressman, I think I lost you on that. What did you say? Um, I mean, you said the are, things they've were, turned off? Certain, yeah, there were certain activities and, and programs that because they didn't want to offend the Iranians, and I'll give you one that was fairly public. Remember the whole chemical weapon use in Syria? The reason that the administration didn't want to find that there was chemical weapons, and believe me, I saw the evidence, it was pretty clear to me, is because they didn't want to offend the Iranians. Uh, it, it happened in Syria. Uh, Assad used uh, chemical weapons. Remember the Obama sure. red line? This is the red line if they use chemical weapons. Well, it was pretty darn clear that they had used chemical weapons, and they just kept moving the red line uh, because they didn't want to offend the Iranians, because they were trying to get this Iranian nuclear deal. I see the same kind of behavior today. Right. Uh, and they're just not transparent about it. They're a little opaque about it. And it's that's what causes trouble. And that's exactly where they are. That's why we're at odds with our with the Saudis. And that's what, exactly why our Arab League partners are scratching their head and why the president even has to say, no, no, we're not abandoning the Middle East. Well, there, there are concrete things you can do, Mr. President, to send him a message. Uh, and, a, and, a, and a jumbled statement isn't one of them. So I want you to hear it. Gary Kasparov joined me on One Nation on Saturday night. And you know his, uh, the, the chess champion, ran for president uh, over there, has great connections. This is what he says he's hearing on the ground in Ukraine and what is happening back in Moscow. Cut 21. And the only offer arms for Putin is the way out of Ukraine. That's it, you know. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, you know, if you have this military defeat and no dictatorship, look at Russian history, ever survived uh, the military defeat of that magnitude, then you have millions of refugees from Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and then you have a beaten army, angry people, many of them coming back with arms, plus economic collapse. By next spring, Russia will be bankrupt. The sanctions are working. And if those ingredients are not indicators of a collapse, tell me what it is. Do you, do you agree with that ripple effect of losing on the ground, grabbing people off the streets and putting them in uniform and throwing them on the front lines? It seems has all the earmarks of desperation. It does. I would be a little cautious. Remember on uh, Castro, we said uh, he was going to die any minute for 50 years and he would be out any minute for 50 years. Remember, Assad was going to be just months and he would be gone. He's still there. Um, I, I, the, the Khomeini regimes, plural, uh, were always going to collapse. They're still there. Uh, you know, he owns the security apparatus and Russia is a security state. And so he owns it about 10 deep. 
Uh, even his oligarchs understand that if he's not president, their their version of their money goes away and their status right. goes away, much as they might not like what he's doing. And so I think that all allows him to be in power longer than we would all want him to be. So I wouldn't make any plans that he's going to fall over dead any okay. minute or somebody's going to walk in and pull a trigger or anything like that. I just don't believe it. I mean, you hope for it, but I, I don't see it happening. And we have to plan for a guy that's going to be there a while. And how do you set the table for him to either negotiate an exit of Ukraine uh, or something different right. than that? And this dribbling and drabbling out of things is not the way to do it. Obviously, what we're doing is what the administration is doing is allowing a lot more Ukrainians to die than, than need to. Just give them everything they need. So I want to go to Igor Dushenko and the fact that he was on the FBI's payroll, the fact that they were going to go up to Christopher Steele and say, if you could verify your dossier, I'll give you a million dollars. What was the FBI up to? Is this the organization that you work for? And are you as outraged as outsiders like me are about what's been exposed? All right. I absolutely am. I, I do want to make sure we're fact-based on everything that we uh, hold them accountable to, but they need to be held accountable like any other organization. Remember, you know, two years ago we lost two agents who were serving a child pornography warrant. Uh, the guy got out a gun and shot them both. I mean, agents are doing real important work all over the country. I chased guys like No-Nos DeFranzo and Johnny Yates and uh, Big Tuna Ayupa, that was what I was doing in Chicago. Those are criminal actors doing bad things in the community, and there's lots of FBI agents across the country doing that. What's going on on the top floors of the FBI building is very concerning, and it looks to be it's starting to become a culturally accepted activity. And when I was in, I'm telling you, none of that would have been acceptable. You never want the FBI's credibility questioned. It's just too important an institution for the United States because it does really important criminal work. So they need to get to the bottom of it, and people need to be held mm. accountable. Uh, and they need to send the message that that kind of activity would not be tolerated. So Newt Here Gingrich told me today, so I said, in perspective, from Christopher Ray to James Comey to Robert Mueller— I said, what is going on here? I mean, obviously, they seem to be targeted, not following up after the Bobolinsky interview, not even having Bobolinsky go to the grand jury, uh, you know, seeing that the whole Mueller thing that was done that lasted two and a half years, cost millions of dollars, was based on things that didn't happen. He said this goes back to Scooter Libby being prosecuted, knowing that Scooter Libby, that it was Richard Armitage that gave that information about uranium. And that they wouldn't prosecute Scooter Libby from talking to uh, a reporter about it when Richard Armitage admitted already it was him. And then you have the Russia investigation uh, with using Christopher Steele and the fake FISA warrants using the Steele dossier. And then this whole thing comes out. Donald Trump actually wins the election instead of saying, "Okay, that's it. They amped it up. How do you explain that? I'm not sure I can, honestly. As a matter of fact, the agent's activity where you had a doctored FISA application warrant, I mean, uh, those are outrageously and egregious activities by by an agent. And I just don't see any corrective action at the top of the bureau. Uh, you know, when the last uh, opening of the FBI, the Agents Association had never done this, actually endorsed me to do it. And now I see why. I think there's lots of agents who are wanting the FBI to get back to doing what it does right. and stay out of these political right. 
uh, operation for this very purpose. It is tarnishing a great organization and the men and women who are actually fighting real crime across America, and we need to change it. Mike Rogers, thanks so much. Uh, Always great to talk to you. Uh, This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Back in a moment. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Right now, the Republicans have a turnout advantage. More of them say they're enthusiastic. More of them say that they're definitely going to vote. What could get the Democrats in contention to maybe hold the House? It's young people. If young people were to show up more than they say they're going to, you plug that into the into the model and the Democratic seat number goes up where they're right in contention to maybe get a bare majority. So if you want to know how the Democrats could hold the House, it's young people showing up more than they say they will. And right now, the young people, for the most part, don't, especially at the midterms. Let's see what happens if they get something going on campuses. But for the 65 plus, their major concern, the economy. 78 percent of the country think the economy is poor. And nobody could say, well, that Republican House, not the case. That Republican Senate, not the case. That Republican president, not the case. So it all does turn on them. And CBS said the momentum was there in July for Democrats to stop the red wave. It dissipated a little in August and it stopped considerably in September. And as of last week, has gone back to the Republicans. Not only are the Democrats not picking up momentum, the Republicans are gaining it. They got a good message. The candidates people are warming up to. The other thing is the Democrats got a terrible track record, even though they tell you just the opposite. Hey, go to BrianKillMe.com. Your chance to pre-order the paperback of the president and freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the battle to save America's soul with brand new information brings you the news into history. Thanks so much for listening. Brian Kilmeade Show. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest moment of the Brian Kilmeade Show from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, heard around the world, especially in the Ukraine. Jonathan Turley, bottom of the hour, is closing arguments beginning the Dushenko trial, which is real important. If you understand what's going on in the FBI, and a lot of it is not good. It's flat-out evil. Uh, not everybody, but I cannot wait. If, if Congress does flip, especially the House, uh, which is a virtual lock, we're going to get to find out who these whistleblowers are inside the FBI. Get politics out of it and find out what exactly is going on. Uh, Michael Goodwin standing by, so let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. And the only off-ramps for Putin is the way out of Ukraine. That's it. You know, uh, If you have this military defeat and no dictatorship, Look at Russian history, ever survived uh, the military defeat of that magnitude. Yeah, that is uh, Gary Kasparov, Ukraine surviving and thriving while still being shelled by Russian rockets and Iranian drones. Why there could be a winner this winter and what one famous uh, connected Russian thinks will happen if Ukraine keeps taking back their land. 
Number two. Everything that the rest of the country is now experiencing, the soaring inflation, the surging crime, we're very familiar with it here in California, and it is by design. Gavin Newsom has said California is a model for the nation. Model for the nation. Kevin Riley, red wave reprimed as crime, border chaos, inflation, uh, uh, take over as Trump, January 6th, and abortion falls back. We look at the polls that have seats in deep blue states threatened by red. Number one. I would look at the following variables. Retail sales, uh, payroll employment, consumer spending, industrial production, all of those have not been flashing red. All of those are not in recessionary territory. Okay, Jared Bernstein, your job is to spin, I guess, revealing numbers about how you feel about the economy, what it means for the midterms 21 days away, and the numbers to spin the messaging straight ahead. Uh, Michael Goodwin, uh, thanks so much. I mean, it's amazing uh, for joining us. It's amazing that we're getting so many people from the Democrats who have been into panic because not something Republicans are doing, but the economy is preventing such a challenge. The border is becoming such a big story. Crime is overwhelming so many cities. They can't keep up, and they don't have the right message. Uh, good morning, Brian. No, that's correct, that uh, there's there's nothing you can really say about crime, the border, inflation, that uh, gives voters any confidence. And so all you can do is change the subject. Uh, I mean, Biden can go out and, as I write, you know, his Walter Mitty-esque things and, and make these crazy claims that inflation is small, it's mitigating. I mean, people know it's not true. And, you know, the fact that the way he has used the oil reserve to try to flood the market with oil to keep the prices low, uh, that reserve is supposed to be for a national emergency. Now, other presidents have used it temporarily, but no one has ever used it the way he has. And we're going to have to buy that oil at some point. So it's really an illusion that uh, without it, yes, the prices might be higher, but there will be a price to be paid. And if there should be an emergency in the meantime, America does not have the oil reserves that it's supposed to have. It's down near around 40 percent of what we usually have. So, look, he has done everything except admit the obvious, which is that the economy is sinking that people feel poorer. I mean, that is, you know, and it's not without reason. You look at, say, the stock market, the 401Ks, the 40% of the people who are in the market, they, are, they feel poorer. Um, look at the, the people whose wages are being killed by inflation, right? Eight, nine percent. When you think of paying eight or nine or ten percent more for groceries, yep. gasoline, rent, I mean, th- th- no one's salary is keeping pace with that. So people are actually poorer. They're, they're falling behind. And for people who are living paycheck to paycheck, for many of them, that will mean going into debt, some kind of temporary thing to cover. But after a while, that temporary thing that covers runs out. And so this is a shambles. The, 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 the precipice that we're on here with all of these issues, the border, I mean, my goodness, when you think about roughly four and a half million people now in the country, 
who are here either supposedly temporary or clearly illegally. I mean, over a million gotaways, meaning that they were not apprehended. They did not register. They did not claim asylum. They just came across the border because it was open. Over a million of them in, in the in the 20 months of Biden's presidency. So he has he has screwed things up to a fairly well. Yeah. Uh, he outdid I himself. Just, yes. So, yes. But and, listen, and, to, and, listen to this. Pete Buttigieg, who evidently is the number one requested person for the Biden administration, you know, the mayor and transportation secretary, because the supply chain is going so well and all transportation uh, really, including plane travel, just been fantastic. Listen to it. He says the biggest problem the administration has. Cut five. And I do think we run the risk because there have been so many accomplishments, right? The CHIPS Act that's bringing manufacturing back to the United States, uh, the PACT Act getting veterans the benefits they deserve, of course, the infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. On top of that American Rescue Plan, uh, you know, in some ways, having achieved so much legislatively makes it uh, hard to talk about it all at once because there are just so many accomplishments. Is that really, t- is, is that really a struggle? Does your heart go out to him? Listen, uh, he's, he's quickly lost touch with uh, any uh, real government uh, that uh, experience that he had and you would think he would have had a, as a mayor, uh, which is that it's not about legislation. People don't look at legislation and feel better until the legislation hits and affects their daily lives. And so it's a talking point to say legislation is an accomplishment, but it doesn't hit people's lives uh, until it takes effect. And none of these things are helping people now, the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, it's not working, obviously, uh, because inflation continues to remain sky high. I mean, I think that's part of the thing that discredits Democrats is in, and disqualifies them in this election for a lot of voters is that they're not speaking truthfully. They're speaking governmentally. They're speaking partisanly. They're not speaking truthfully. Uh, let's look at individual races. Uh, Julie Pace uh, weighed in from the Associated Press over the weekend about what's going on, for example, in Georgia. Cut 10. The Georgia Senate race between Walker and Warnock is fascinating for multiple reasons, you know, including many of the allegations, you know, being made against Herschel Walker. But if you think about this Senate landscape right now and the prospect of a runoff in Georgia, we could very much end up in the same place we were in coming out of 2020, where the balance of the Senate is resting on a runoff in Georgia. And I think what's really fascinating about that state right now is in the governor's race, you see Kemp really putting some distance with with Stacey Abrams there and how that could then affect a a runoff. I think Democrats have to be worried about that. So what they got to do is prevent, if Herschel Walker's got to win, or prevent Warnock from getting 50%, and we could be right back where we were January 6, 2021. Yeah, that was so much fun, wasn't it, Brian? It was fantastic. Look, I I think that the good news in what she was saying there is I I regard Stacey Abrams as something of a poisonous character on the American scene. I mean, there's something off about her. She's obviously intelligent, uh, clever, and, and, and could be likable, I think, in many circumstances. But the things she says are so false in so many ways that, you know, 
basically starting with the the fact that the election the last time was stolen from her in 18. Then she denies saying that. I mean, and and this this thing that somehow Republicans are evil people who are trying to keep uh, black people from voting. I think it's such a poisonous thing to throw into the public debate. And so I think if she is defeated, that a lot of people in the Democratic Party would say, well, we're not going down that path. That's not a winning argument to make, that people are being denied to vote, especially when black turnout in some of these states is, is higher than ever. So it just it's a false argument. It's a poisonous argument. And she keeps making it. So defeating her, I think, would be a terrific. I'm, I'm not saying anything about Brian Kemp. I don't really know his policies. But I do believe that Stacey Abrams is, is not a good figure for American politics, not partisanly, but just a kind of divisive figure right. that, that can only spread poison. Just so you know, uh, Brian Kemp was one of the quickest to open after the pandemic, during the pandemic. And number one, number two is there are people are talking about him. If he is to prevail like he is, seems to be now. Uh, running for president. And I know he's an enemy of Trump. He'd have no problem running against Trump. I'm not sure what kind of traction he would get. But the other bigger story is right in your backyard. Governor Lee, uh, Governor gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin, congressman from Suffolk County, has went from 12 points down to eight points down and now to five points down. Now he's within the margin of error to the point where the Cook Report now looks at this, the governor's race, as a toss-up. Here's Lee Zeldin, cut 15. A lot of New Yorkers are just really fed up with Kathy Hochul. She's doing a, a terrible job as governor. New Yorkers are leaving this country, uh, this state, more than any other state across the entire country. Uh, and the reason why is because Albany has been attacking their safety, attacking their wallets, and they're heading for opportunities elsewhere. Uh, so there's a, a vibe on the ground that there needs balance uh, restored to Albany. Uh, people want to save the state. They want to save New York City. Uh, and they're tired of having to wake up every morning and, and read all of the headlines of a rising crime in their own neighborhood, places where they used to feel safe and walk uh, walk the streets comfortably, and now they're calling an Uber just to go a couple blocks. Are, new, are, are Republicans getting too, uh, uh, too optimistic here, or do you think that Lee Zeldin has closed the gap and is the landscape something that he's giving people an alternative? Well, you know, Brian, um, I've always thought that uh, this was a winnable campaign for uh, Republicans. They've not won a statewide race in New York since uh, 2002, so 20 years. Uh, and this is the first one that really looks winnable. And part of the reason why is not only the fact that Democrats control everything. They control all the statewide offices. They control both houses of the legislature, veto-proof majorities in both houses of the legislature. But you've begin, begun to see in the last couple of elections, uh, particularly on Long Island, you've seen Republicans winning county executive uh, DA races. You've begun to see people saying, this isn't working. Uh, this this one-party rule is not working. The soft on crime, the high taxes, the the wokeness, uh, all of these are Democratic results. And I think that Lee Zeldin has effectively tapped into this, particularly on crime, with the governor. And the governor, you know, of course, she inherited the office after the disgraced Andrew Cuomo left, was forced out. Uh, 
but she has been a kind of placeholder, like a substitute teacher who doesn't really seem to want the job. She's, she's raised all kinds of money. She's done all of that. There's lots of pay-to-play accusations, but she hasn't campaigned. She hasn't really promised anything. She's some, somewhat a captive of the legislature and thinks she can defeat Zeldin. Uh, uh, she doesn't really hold campaign events. This is a rose garden strategy to the extreme, and Zeldin is out there talking to people about their everyday concerns and all uh, Kathy Hochul can talk about is abortion and Donald Trump, abortion and Donald Trump. And I think Zeldin did a very smart thing. Zeldin is pro-life, and New York more than codified Roe v. Wade. Right. I mean, the, the New York rights to abortion are beyond what Roe v. Wade guaranteed. And Zeldin did a smart thing by running an ad in which he says, I cannot and I will not change the abortion law. So I think that, in many ways, took it off the table. Or I know, but she's running as it says he is into zero, you know, zero ban. She's saying something totally dishonest. Yes, and but and that's all she's campaigning on. I know is a, is abortion and Lee Zeldin's connection to Donald Trump. Uh, she's not talked about crime. She's not talked about taxes. She's not talked about inflation. Uh, New York has terrible energy pro- uh, policies that Andrew Cuomo instituted. So there's so much to be done in the state. She's not talking about it. She's she won't debate. She's hiding from from voters. Even she doesn't campaign. I think. I think it's a disastrous decision that she made, and I think it has opened the door. Apart from the policies, I think her lack of a campaign has given Zeldin a lot of room to run, and he is a dogged campaigner. He's working very hard. He's getting the money now because of the polls. He's getting money. I think it's a winnable race, and and I think the polls generally have it right that it's tightening. Whether it's a true toss-up, I can't say, but it's definitely – there's no enthusiasm for her, and he is putting himself out as a viable alternative. All right. Uh, I'll tell you what, and your column about Saudi Arabia is also insightful as well, and you were the first to put that together, that the President Biden is really manipulating the election by telling Saudis, put off your decrease in production of 2 million barrels a day. No question. Michael Goodwin, thanks so much. New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. You got it. When we come back, we'll open up the phones, one 866 Also remind you that we're waiting uh, for opening our closing arguments on the Deschenko trial. Jonathan Turley will weigh in what we've learned already. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Whenever I got a little too professorial and, you know, started when I was behind a podium as opposed to when I was in a crowd, there were times where I'd get, you know, uh, you know sound like I was giving a bunch of policy gobbledygook. And that's not how people think about these issues. They, they think about them in terms of, you know, the things that I, I care most deeply about, my family, my kids, you know, not, not being a buzzkill, right? Uh, <laughs> that's you know, a, that's so, a lesson for the Democratic yeah, Party. Yeah, and, and sometimes Democrats are, right? It's, it's like, you know, sometimes people just want to not feel as if 
they are walking on eggshells. And Barack Obama said this many times, that he does not like the cancel culture stuff. And he's trying to wake Democrats because Democrats own this. And he's trying to say, what are you guys doing? Because you can't play the perfect game. It's going to blow up in your face. And we watch that. Look at Hollywood and everybody that's been banned and canceled because they're not playing a perfect game. And then you start calling people out. And Bill Maher was one of the first to say it and continues to say it. But to President Obama's credit, he never has been one to walk around saying this guy should be canceled. How dare he say that? Because he's very cognizant of what's around the corner. Especially when you have a current president right now saying the most awkward things possible, especially when it comes to young women. You see him over the weekend? We'll get up to this woman says no serious boyfriends till 30, and he's talking to him. He's getting way too close. Uh, that type of stuff, you don't have a cancel culture with that. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. The left has never had any interest in trying to prove or disprove the Steele dossier. They have just moved on like it was something that had never happened. They want to ignore it. Uh, They don't want to go back in that time uh, where they were trying to get Trump, uh, trying to discredit him, trying to prevent him, first prevent him from being president and then ultimately try to prevent him from being successful as president. So it's, you know, the, the left is never good at introspection after the fact. That is Matt Whitaker, who was acting attorney general. Uh, yeah, an acting attorney general. And then William Barr would take over after Sessions was given his walking papers, who greenlighted the Mueller report, which was an absolute travesty. Uh, Jonathan Turley, uh, welcome back. So that was Matt Whitaker just talking about the revelations that came out from the Deschenko trial. I've never seen this before, but you're the other one who studies and teaches law. Where I'm not, I don't, I'm not that curious about the verdict as I am about the revelations during the trial. I I learned a lot by Sussman's trial, even though he wasn't convicted. Jonathan, do you think I'm way out of bounds in that? No. In fact, most of us were not that keenly interested in who would be charged or convicted because the statute of limitations uh, has been running and is about to run out for virtually everyone associated with this uh, rather sordid uh, story. Uh, what we are interested in is the, the report of the special counsel and the information that he can share. And he has shared a great deal of that. In fact, it's been uh, really breathtaking uh, to learn these details. And what's notable is that most of this was not revealed by uh, special counsel Mueller. Either he didn't know uh, or he didn't reveal it to the public. And so we're learning a lot of details about how the Hillary Clinton campaign hatched this uh, Steele dossier and the Alpha Bank uh, false stories and how they planted it in the media with allies, how they pushed it to allies in the FBI, um, while they were also denying uh, that they were funding the Steele dossier. Uh, people like Mark Elias, who was the general counsel, uh, has been criticized by reporters who said that they were told by the campaign that they had not funded the Steele dossier. It came out later that funding was buried uh, in the budget of Mark Elias and the campaign's legal fund. But also what is really <laughs> quite amazing is these accounts of how far the FBI went. Danchenko worked for both 
uh, the the steel operation and the FBI. That should worry a lot of people. You know, he he first he got paid to put together the steel dossier. Then he got paid by the FBI. The FBI offered a million dollars to steal if he could bag Trump. They said, if you can prove any of this, we'll give you a million dollars, which, of course, he couldn't prove. But none of that had any impact on the FBI's conduct. They didn't take any real steps to confirm this information. It was a case of willful blindness at at best. And in this trial, uh, Durham actually confronted one of these FBI figures, who, by the way, was trying to rehabilitate Danchenko on the stand. So this this agent was talking about, no, 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 he's not a Russian agent. And Durham Durham said, well, hold it. You were told by American intelligence he might be an an agent. Um, Did you look into that? And he said, well, no, I didn't have access. And Durham correctly said, you can get access. You just have to request it. Did you ever request it? And, of course, he said no. So it didn't seem to be that much of a concern to him that he was running someone who actually could be a double agent. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I thought about you. When, when I'm watching this, I'm hearing about this, reading the reports, the one-pagers, I'm thinking, with all the experience you had, are you as shocked as I am? And, and by the way, Carter Page came out and said, really, I work for the FBI for free. Uh, you're paying this Russian a million, you know, you're paying this Russian money uh, to do this. And then you're offering steel a million dollars. Where are you getting this money? It's not coming out of Christopher Ray's po- pocket. It's coming out of it's American taxpayer dollars working against the current president. By the way, can, you know, Carter you, Page, you know, Carter Page is I'm glad you brought him up because, you know, what's really disgusting about this whole story is not just that the media was a willing purveyor of this false these false claims and it wasn't that they they refused to actually cover the fact that it was false they refused to follow the leads they even when they came out they've downplayed it what's really disgusting is that you have individuals like carter page who were ruined by the media and by the fbi and they couldn't care less i mean what is clear is that carter page was not guilty of any of this stuff that there was never evidence right, right. to justify what they did to him. And yet the media turned him into an absolute m- grotesque monster. And there's been no apologies. There's been no recognitions. They just moved on. It's amazing, too, because I watched him. He went to MSNBC. The first time I saw him, I saw that it was, remember it being teased six years ago, five years ago. Carter Page to appear for the first time since his name came up in the Mueller probe. I'm going, why is he going to MSNBC? That's interesting. And then he goes on, and he got kind of surprised by the, like, the, the, these questions. He, he looked like any, he looked like he was totally caught by surprise by the whole thing, where one, one might have surmised that he was guilty. But yet, I always thought to myself, imagine if you're totally innocent of something. And you have official people, powerful people accusing you of it. It might be very easy to say, I would just consider it my, my innocence. But then they say they got evidence of it. And they make you doubt yourself after a while. And next thing you know, Manafort's life is ruined. This guy's life is ruined. Papadopoulos goes to jail. Who knows if it's related to his marriage blowing up that happened. We know that for two years, any type of U.S.-Russian relations were blown up. I'm not a fan of the Russian government, but I'm pretty sore that it didn't help that we made up some fictitious relationship with Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. 
after a while, it went from, wow, this is great to see American chaos to, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? Now we look like uh, 10-foot-tall, 100-foot-tall monsters. So they do this at the same time. The Hunter Biden, this gets confusing. The Hunter Biden thing is percolating, and it's all related. These people are covering up relationships there to make sure Trump is not elected again. No, what's really I, I, and you, what, what what really is just incredible is that w- when the Trump Tower meeting happened with Donald Trump Jr., all the media piled on and said, "My God, this is huge because the Russians might be planting a false story against Hillary Clinton into the media. This could be an all-in effort to make her look." Suspicious. Oh, yes, All right. of those, those those reporters were pursuing that line at the time when they were doing exactly that with Donald Trump. And by that time, by the way, it was already clear that this was baseless. In fact, it was clear very early on. American intelligence told the FBI, um, we think this is actually Russian disinformation. We, th- th- there's no proof to any of this. And your sources are bogus. Yeah, and then every type of incidental contact, like Senator Sessions meeting with a Russian ambassador, is sinister. Well, I was a sitting senator. He walked in. I shook my hand. But no, it built on a false narrative. See, now he became attorney general. And right away, the Russian establish, establishment and even Michael Flynn. Uh, Michael Flynn takes a call in the Bahamas from another government or Puerto Rico from another government in a week before he's about to start work. And next thing you know, the FBI comes and visits him and catches him, what I think is an entrapment. And next thing you know, without any lawyer, you guys, can I come by and question you? Sure. You don't need an attorney? No, just come by, guys. It doesn't matter. Next thing you know, two attorneys ask Michael Flynn some things. He ends up in getting incriminated, and they got to let him go. So it's, it, it's unbelievable what took place at the same time, four years later, running for reelection, another story percolating, final weeks. The, the FBI, again, squelches a story that is still being suppressed four years later. I just don't understand how this organization is continuing to exist this way. Well, I mean, it's also it's, it's a combination, obviously, that the, the Clinton campaign and the Biden White House has, have really been sort of geniuses in manipulating scandals. I mean, with with the Russian collusion story. The Clinton campaign got away with it. People like Mark Elias and others got away with it. And, you know, you, there's no accountability. And then when they killed the Hunter Biden story, it was, it was genius. I mean, I wrote a, a column once that this is really the way Houdini made an elephant disappear. Uh, because the elephant never left the stage. But the, the audience wanted to believe the elephant disappeared. And so what, he, what, what the Bidens did is they used the media. They had to buy into the trick. And so when it was finally revealed that this was all a trick, the elephant didn't disappear, the media couldn't admit it. And you see that with Zucker and Griffin recently with their interviews, tying themselves into knots, trying to come up with an explanation for why they didn't cover Hunter Biden. And of course, it was laughable. I mean, it was, you know, you had Zucker saying, well, this was just 15 days before the election. It took him over 500 days after the election to even acknowledge the authenticity of the laptop. And then you had Griffin saying, well, it's because he wasn't arrested, as if Don Trump Jr. was was let out in cuffs out of the Trump Tower. It didn't stop them the absence of arrest from doing 24-7 coverage. Absolutely. I remember the president flying back from the North Korea summit 
And the big story was not North Korea meeting with this nuclear renegade hermit kingdom, but instead was Don Jr. met with some Russian operative in the Trump Tower. And what was, uh, uh, you know, what was Jared Kushner doing there? Why was he texting? Why were they all? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, we're off on that tangent again. And then they're blowing commercials to CNN to continue to run with this story. So I ask you, if the House flips and they start doing investigations on the FBI, do you expect these whistleblowers to come forward, faces exposed, saying, uh, I'm concerned, just like if Jonathan Turley was an FBI agent witnessing all this? Well, I hope so. I hope that there is a real need for an investigation here. What's interesting is all the media has been saying for two years is that, you know, there's nothing for Durham to investigate. Uh, We have the Mueller report. Well, of course, they can't say that to anyone who's read any part of the story. That is what Durham has revealed was never revealed by Mueller. And it was not even revealed in the earlier inspector general reports. And he clearly has a lot more. And so hopefully they will investigate, because many of us have a lot of questions. Uh, apparently, the Biden administration just said that the key FBI agent who has been credited with killing the story, or killing the investigation, I should say, will not cooperate with the House uh, if they investigate Hunter Biden. Tim Tebow? Uh, apparently they say, yes, they said that what Tebow knows is confidential, and so... There's no intention to have him testify. Can he do that? I mean, well, we're putting, a, aren't we putting, who are we putting in jail? Steve Batting goes to jail today for ignoring uh, a subpoena? Well, the funny thing is, it's the same argument that some Trump people have made. So the Democrats are going to be arguing that Congress shouldn't ask these questions uh, because of privilege. The problem is that by the time the House takes over, there probably is going to be uh, an indictment of some type or charges of some type against Hunter Biden. If there's not, then I think there's going to be an absolute outrage. I mean, what most of us are expecting is that he's going to be given rather modest charges and may even cut a plea deal. Uh, But if that happens, it could end up that there might not be a criminal prosecution. So the case might be effectively over from the perspective of the FBI. So it'll be interesting if Tipo continues to say, I can't share information. Unbelievable. Uh, Jonathan, what do you expect in the verdict today? Or what do you expect when the jury deliberates? How long do you think it'll take? Um, and what do you think will happen? Well, it's not a complex case. These are relatively easy counts. They dropped one of the five. Uh, They're tough cases to make out. I mean, the judge made a decision to drop one of them because the language was unclear because he asked Danchenko whether he talked to this key individual. And uh, he said he might have misunderstood that question. Um, Now, as a defense attorney, I sort of appreciate that, although that's a level of concern that Michael Flynn didn't get in the D.C. courts. Uh, that everything he said seemed to just be um, incriminating and kept in the case. But it's a tough case for Durham, uh, but we'll see. I mean, there, it, it does seem like this. I mean, there's no question that Danchenko, for most of us, gave in false information because the field dossier was false. And a lot of it came from Danchenko. But um, we'll have to see how the jury reacts, particularly to this one FBI agent who really went out of his way to 
rehabilitate Danchenko on the stand and said, no, 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 no. He he was huge in terms of his the benefits to the United States. Uh, he's not a Russian agent. And Durham really, you know, drilled into him and said, how do you know? You never even made an inquiry. But that can still make an impact on the jury, enough to get a hung jury or acquittal. So we'll see. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Uh, fascinating time and disturbing, I, I add, together. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm glad me. we're getting some answers, but the fact that this is still happening is nuts. John, thank you. Uh, when we come back, I open up the phones, one 408 I hope you were able to follow all that. I know it gets confusing, and they want it to be confusing, but I'm going to try to continue to unwind it. Don't move. Getting past all the rhetoric, it's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Retail sales, uh, payroll employment, consumer spending, industrial production, all of those have not been flashing red. All of those are not in recessionary territory. The Fed is focused on bringing down inflation, and we are starting to see signs that the actions they are taking is having an effect. The majority of inflation is not attributable to fiscal policy. Really? So you're not doing anything except for helping. So if something goes good, Pete Buttigieg says, that's us. When something goes bad, I had nothing to do with that. Problem is, nobody believes that. And the Secretary of Transportation, I think he's a very bright guy, by the way, know that about it. But I don't, I don't think that he has a track record to run on. The average mayor, no big accomplishments in tiny South Bend, which I love the town. I've been there a number of times, not just to go to Notre Dame. We have a great affiliate there. Love the people. But you're not exactly like running New York City. And then he becomes secretary. He does a horrible job running for president, gets almost no votes in the South. Nothing's changed. Then he becomes secretary of transportation. And then he takes three months off at a time in which our supply chain is totally broken down. He says the supply chain is getting better. But why is the economy not doing better? The supply chain is slowing things down. Problem is... The people of the United States don't view it that way. The economy is poor. 78% says yes. The average 401k is down 25%. We have an average of loss, $2.1 trillion in our 401ks. The average family lost $6,000 in purchasing power over the last 20 months. And since President Biden took office, monthly savings is down. Hold on to something, 83%. But they had nothing to do with it. When, When the oil prices go up, Putin price hike. Saudi Arabia is to blame. When they go down, Joe Joe Biden is taking strong action to help bring prices down. When they go up again, Saudi Arabia is to blame. Nothing to do with our output. Wrong. Who's to blame? Gas station owners and oil producers. Everything you don't want your children or anybody you mentor to do, blame others in time of stress and tragedy, that's what he's doing. 98% of CEOs preparing for a recession. But the president says... We're not heading to a recession. Inflation's transitory, but it remains between 8 and 9% for over a year. Good luck with that. You tell me how that's going to rhyme 21 days from now. That's why Oregon's in play in the governorship, and that's why New York's in play. Uh, Zeldin Hochul, now a toss-up. No joke, Jack. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
Hey, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. Jason Riley standing by. Uh, Wall Street Journal columnist, Manhattan Institute senior fellow. Bottom of the hour, the great Brett Baer, chief political anchor of Fox News, who'll be joining us. Uh, we'll look forward to getting his insight because uh, I know most of you cannot get enough of what's happening leading up to the midterms, as can I, especially as it goes to the drama in the Senate. And you have so many of these states that were normally... Uh, it, uh, you know, the, basically the die had been cast. This is what's going to happen. And then you see the governorship in uh, Oregon, a Republican leading. And then we get the news on Saturday that Lee Zeldin's, co- Lee Zeldin's candidacy uh, to be next governor of New York as a Republican, not one since George Pataki, has went from lean left to toss up. That's how bad crime is. That's how bad the border is. That's how bad inflation is. The economy is right now in America. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. And the only off-ramps for Putin is the way out of Ukraine. That's it. You know, uh, If you have this military defeat and no dictatorship, look at Russian history, ever survived uh, the military defeat of that magnitude. Uh, there you go. Gary Kasparov, Ukraine surviving and thriving while still being shelled by Russian rockets and Iranian drones. Why there could be a winner this winter and what famous connected Russian like Gary Kasparov thinks will happen if Ukraine keeps on taking their land back. Number two. Everything that the rest of the country is now experiencing, these soaring inflation, the surging crime, we're very familiar with it here in California. And it is by design. Gavin Newsom has said California is a model for the nation. Model for the nation. Well, Kevin Riley, last night on Next Revolution, Red Wave reprimed as crime, border chaos, inflation, and Trump, January 6th, and abortion fall back. We look at the polls and where the seats could be flipping. Number one. I would look at the following variables. Retail sales, uh, payroll employment, consumer spending, industrial production. All of those have not been flashing red. All of those are not in recessionary territory. Really? Okay, Jared Bernstein, the sky is blue, revealing numbers about how you feel about the economy, what it means for the midterms 21 days away. The numbers, the spin, the messaging will matter so much. Jason Riley, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, First off, also, you are also the best-selling author of The Black Boon. Uh, Jason, when uh, when we talk about where this election is right now, it's a much different conversation than we had in August, even especially July. When people were talking about the Dobbs decision and the and gas prices going down, now abortions drop, climate change has plummeted, and first and foremost is the economy, specifically inflation. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's a new New York Times poll out that uh, shows Republicans opening up a 10-point lead among independents. And in September, Democrats had a three-point lead. So that's a pretty big turnaround. And according to the Times, it's mostly due to independent women. In September, they, were, they favored Democrats by 14 points. Now they favor Republicans by 18 points. And it's because their top concern is the economy, not the Dobbs decision that you referenced. They interviewed one woman who said, listen, I'm, I'm pro-choice. I don't like what the Supreme Court did on Dobbs, but I'm still voting Republican because the economy and inflation are my top concerns. So if you're a Democrat, that's got to have you worried. And I think Jared Bernstein really is worried about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he's got to say something positive, but it looks like a total sale. It looks like he's totally selling uh, what he was supposed to be understanding. So listen to Pete Buttigieg. He says the problem is they're too successful. Listen to this. Cut five. 
And I do think we run the risk because there have been so many accomplishments, right? The CHIPS Act that's bringing manufacturing back to the United States, uh, the PACT Act getting veterans the benefits they deserve, of course, the infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. On top of that American Rescue Plan, uh, you know, in some ways, having achieved so much legislatively makes it uh, hard to talk about it all at once because there are just so many accomplishments. So do you feel for him? I think Biden has done a great job of winning over his cabinet, Brian. (laughs) I don't know. And his economic advisors. I don't know how well that is resonating uh, with voters, though. They thought inflation would fade as an issue. We saw some gas prices come down and so forth. They they thought that the January 6th uh, commission would be a top concern, threats to democracy. But they're not really talking about January 6th much. I mean, it's just not an issue that's resonating. And inflation and the economy is still seem to be resonating. Prices going up faster than paychecks. And, uh, you know, the only thing they can hope for is that people don't check their 401k uh, statements on the way to the polls on, on Election Day, Brian. That's that's what they have to hope for. Yeah, they cover the New York Post today that says the 401k is down 25 percent. Overall, we've lost $2.1 trillion from what many people in a co-op situation uh, count on to retire along with Social Security. You know, you uh, that was something that was put out there, and it is in the stock market, so I understand it's going to go up and down. But, you know, you know 2008 caught people by surprise, and it was very painful. But this one is, this is a slow burn because we know what's happening next. Interest rates going to go up higher. Uh, the economy could pause further. And then the fact is that no one's taking ownership of it and they refuse to adjust our own uh, energy output. I find it unbelievably frustrating. I, I, politics aside, I, if President Biden wanted to help his party and his fortunes, he would say the left, you got nowhere to go anyway. We're going to have to temporarily for the next five years be able to pump and frack our way out of this because I didn't want to be subservient to OPEC. We tried that in the 70s and 80s. We got out of that. Nixon made it a mission. It was completed by Obama and Trump. Let me go back to doing that. And you could totally ignore Trump and give Obama credit and do whatever political machinations you wanted. But the result would have been more output. Instead, we're taken out of our emergency uh, emergency fund. Yeah, you're right. He had a chance uh, to pivot on this issue and say to his left flank, I'm sorry, this is, this is radical environmental journal uh, agenda that you want me to push. It, it's unrealistic in the real world and what's going on in the world with Russia and Ukraine. And I, I think, you know, what's going on in Europe with their energy crisis should be a cautionary tale for us, Brian, it is an example of what not to do on energy policy. And that is that they became too dependent on Russia yeah. for energy in Europe. And this, it's going to be a long hard winter for them. And, 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 and the U.S. should look at that and say, that is not where we want to be. And yet Biden continues to push this agenda, even if it means going to autocracies in Venezuela and asking them for help, even if it means going to the Saudis and asking them for help. He doesn't care. He just refuses to lift this war on fossil fuel production in the U.S. And the reality is that renewables cannot power a modern economy. They just, we just do not have the technology for wind and solar to do that sort of thing. Something like 80% of our energy still comes from fossil fuels every year. Coal, natural gas, oil, and so forth. And the idea that we can pretend we can make all that up with renewables is a joke. And Biden continues to be joking with the American people on that issue. And John Kerry knows better, too, and he wants to jam that down the throats while flying around in his private jets. As, by the way, the other story about Christopher Ray doing the same thing with a private jet 
which he's supposed to be using for uh, for criminal activity. Instead, he's using it to go on vacation with the FBI. But that's a side note. The Democrats in the New York Times today, the headline is the Democrats spent two trillion dollars to save the economy. The horrible rescue act that he put out there we didn't need in February. And he says, but they don't want to talk about it, in part because the rescue plan has become fodder for Republicans to attack Democrats over rapidly rising prices, accusing them of overstimulating the economy. Does the New York Times not understand they're attacking them because they did? That Larry Summers said the same thing, Jamie Dimon intimated the same way, and that these non-political players, these money players, are making these analogies? You're absolutely right. The, the, the politicians have flooded the economy with dollars, and that is feeding inflation. And the other thing that they've done there uh, with these so-called you know, pandemic relief packages is give people a disincentive to return to work, Brian, and that is also a big problem. So you have our companies starve for workers and because people have an excuse to stay home. If you're going to suspend student loan payments or paying rent and so forth, if you're going to extend uh, unemployment benefits till kingdom come, you know, people don't have an incentive to work and that becomes a problem in terms of productivity. So yes, these, these, these pandemic relief packages have made things worse instead of better. Even if you could argue that they were needed early on, they clearly have gone on too long and now we're seeing the, the effect of that, particularly with the inflation numbers. Yeah, uh, and, and real quick, what is your level of interest? Do you think the uh, the American people, I think, have turned off on January 6th, they made their opinions. What about the Durham trial? I, I notice I flip around intentionally to get ready to do this show. I don't see much many people carrying it, uh, covering it. But when you talk about corruption at the FBI that's still going on, the transfers already, the Hunter Biden laptop situation, and the resignation of Tim Tebow, I, I see this as huge. Do you? It, it is. It is huge, and I think he's doing a public service there in, in getting everything on record. And historians will look back, and the American people will look back on this as, as a as a important important work that he's done. I still think, though, people are, are looking at their pocketbook issues right now. They're not looking at Durham. They're not looking at January sixth. They're really focused on bread and butter issues, and I think that's what is going to play the the biggest role on election day. Hey, uh, thanks so much, Jason Riley. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Uh, when we come back, I'll take some calls at one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Just to remind you, coming up uh, October twenty fifth, Tuesday, a week from tomorrow, uh, the release of my paperback, "The President of Freedom Fighter: Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the Battle to Save America's Soul." Got new information in it from the takedown of the Douglass statue in Rochester to what's happened with the Freedom Statue that was ripped out in Massachusetts but left in Lincoln Park in Washington, D.C. And then I'll be live on stage, produced with Fox Nation. I'll be there in in Brandon, Mississippi on Saturday, November 12th, 13th, Tulsa, Oklahoma, KRMG listeners. Hope to see you all there. Dan Potter will be there, too. And then uh, December 2nd in Newark, New Jersey, I'll be on stage and uh, have a chance to talk 1776, talk to you about the issues, the post-game, post-mortem, on uh, the election, midterm election, and what we can expect him here on in, as well as talk about our illustrious history, uh, history uh, warts and all. BrianKillMe.com. When we come back, your calls. Don't move. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I 
thought in the spring this was going to be an inflation election, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing. I think a lot of Democrats maybe hoped for some glimmer of good news in uh, in last week's inflation report. They didn't get it, and I think voters uh, didn't really need that official government pronouncement to know that uh, that prices have been uh, brutal over the last year. And you look at history, that means a very tough time for the incumbent and the, the author of this inflation problem. Yeah, the author of this inflation problem to a degree. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's some there's a couple of I think um, we're 10th in terms of highest inflation or eighth. And I think some of the people ahead of us, I think the UK might be ahead of us, but Canada's behind us. Uh, the China and Japan are way behind us. Vietnam, all the Middle East way behind us. And if we go ahead and cut spending at the same time, raise rates, you if you have the formula that we that Reagan used in the 80s to get things down, the bottom line is we increase spending and then we up rates. So people think, wow, my life's not that bad. Maybe I don't have to rush back to work. And then you go, well, I did get an increase, but your increase wasn't in keeping pace with inflation. Going to the numbers. Maybe in reality, you have a different reality. Matt in North Carolina. Hey, Matt. Hello, Brian. Nice to talk to you again. Are Same you there? Here. Yep. Ready to go. What's on your mind? Uh, okay. Last Monday, I heard a speech by Biden. It, it reminded me of what Buttigieg said earlier on your show. He said, I've done more. It's faster than any president in recent memory. So I was telling my Vietnam vet friend that same statement who's 78 years old, he said yes to destroy the country. I said, you finished my sentence. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it's. Uh, I remember when he said that. He also said the economy is doing, uh, it's doing great. He just said, um, the, the president said the economy is strong as hell. Really? As he is asked to stay out of every battleground state, instead he's doing small events to raise money and going to a place like Oregon to win some congressional races while... It's totally unself-aware. I don't know if he has a staffer eating a waffle cone on chocolate chip ice cream. How old is this guy? Was he a child? Was he going to have candy corn next? By the way, candy has gone up 13%. Good luck with that on Halloween. I do believe, but uh, thanks for the call, Matt. I do believe maybe this is something to do with my uh, anti-Halloween bias, but I do believe that people should start charging for Halloween candy. So a little seven-year-old comes up to you and says, you know, trick-or-treat, you'd say $4. Because right now, candy is up 13% more than last year. That according to the most recent inflation numbers. And I'm sure if you get sophisticated candy, like, for example, peanut butter cups, it's really going to be more. Democrats have spent $2 trillion to save the economy, uh, $4 trillion, almost $3.7 trillion overall. And when it doesn't work, they blame Vladimir Putin. It's crazy. I think it's crazy. So that's what the polls say. It's crazy. So Cecilia Rouse who's the chairperson and White House Council of Economic Advisors, she was out in her full blame regalia. Cut three. The Fed is focused on bringing down inflation, and the big concern is can they bring down inflation while maintaining a robust uh, uh, economy, labor market? And we are starting to see signs that the actions they are taking is having an effect. So we are starting to see signs that our red-hot economy is starting to cool. And so we know that because of that strength, we're in we're better positioned than most other countries for the Fed show- to achieve its dual goals. Yeah, but the problem is, by the way, when they talk about a red-hot economy, normally think that's great. They think it's bad because if you continue to spend and grow, uh, you continue to uh, uh, increase inflation because the supply is not there. 
Here's more from Cecilia Rouse. Cut for Part of the challenge for food is actually through energy. And so Putin's war against Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, where he has weaponized natural gas, he's weaponized energy, shows up in food prices as well, because energy is a big component of fertilizer. So there's no question that families are feeling the squeeze. Uh, it's why the president is focused on trying to bring down costs. Right. Uh, so Vladimir Putin weaponizing energy. You don't have to be. We've had, how long is this war now? Nine months? If you just promised, according to oil experts, I was able to speak at Mansfield Oil for an event of theirs. And I got a chance to just talk to everyone in every aspect of it, from the drivers that actually drive the gas trucks to people that do this locally to the ones that bid to invest, as well as people forecasting what's going on and what's going on with drilling and fracking around the world. If we had just promised and shown sincere look at we're going to be able to drill on federal land. We're going to be streamlining the permit process. They would have had investment and the price would have come down because of the promise of more oil getting on the market. We just refused to do that. And that's what he talks about. Well, would, he said, well, we have to deplete our oil reserves at the same time by Vladimir Putin. We don't have to. And by the way, if you ask me in the big picture, Mexico and Canada – I'd be totally off. I'd be talking to the experts and the people that matter most about setting up our own OPEC with Canada and Mexico, with all the problems and sometimes the friction between us. I'd much rather keep it here, bypassing Venezuela, let their infrastructure rot until they get a government that can actually work with us. Here's Bernie Sanders, cut six. Part of the challenge we have is the productive capacity of our country racing to keep up. So failing to invest in that wouldn't make the problem better, it would make it worse. But again, the numbers you just quoted to me would make clear that a majority of inflation is not attributable to fiscal policy. And according to the numbers that uh, were just in the package just now, the American people understand that. They understand that Mm -hmm. inflation is a global phenomenon, but we are fighting it here at home with measures to take that pressure off of families. Peter Pujad, very well spoken, by the way. He was doing his Bernie Sanders impression. But Bernie Sanders feels the same exact way. They don't want to take blame for it. You want to win an election. But the polls show they are blaming you for it. That's one of the bad sides of winning both Senate seats and keeping a majority in the House. With very public figures like Schumer and Pelosi. No one thinks it's McCarthy and McConnell. They will soon, perhaps, especially if things go that way in the next 21 days. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Brett Baer next. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Right now, the Republicans have a turnout advantage. More of them say they're enthusiastic. More of them say that they're definitely going to vote. What could get the Democrats in contention to maybe hold the House? It's young people. If young people were to show up more than they say they're going to, you plug that into the into the model and the Democratic seat number goes up where they're right in contention to maybe get a bare majority. So if you want to know how the Democrats could hold the House, it's young people showing up more than they say they will. But that's Anthony Salvanto on CBS. And he did say before that. The July, the momentum was there behind the Democrats to reverse the red wave. It ticked down a little, but it was still there. And as of late September, it's changed, and Republicans have the momentum back. Does Brett Baer feel the same way? He studies the polls, the numbers, the pie graph, the bar, uh, the bar graphs, and the pie charts. 
He is Brett Baer. Uh, he is also the author of To Rescue the Republic, now out on paperback, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and The Crisis of 1876. Brett, what do you think? Uh, obviously, I've heard people say that before, get young people out to vote. It's very tough during the midterms. Yeah. Good morning. I think it is uh, very tough. Midterms historically are not generators of, of young voters, uh, usually. Uh, and historically, I mean, just go back, it's the party in the White House that has a tough time during the midterms. You add to that, the inflation numbers came out last week, that on top of the inflation that was already cooking, and what's coming November 2nd with the Fed and their move, um, which is going to hike interest rates at some point and maybe significantly to the point where the economy really feels it. Everybody already looks at their 401k, you know, even young people every once in a while, what they're putting away. Uh, if they're losing money, it's not a good feeling. And we've been losing money for a while. Yeah, I mean, and and if the numbers are pretty staggering, too. I mean, the front page of the New York Post today, 401ks are down 25%, lost about $2 trillion. You want to hit the average American? 401ks does that. The average family lost $6,000 in purchasing power. Uh, since Biden took office, savings are down 83%. The Dow's down 6 the Nasdaq's down 18 But they don't take the blame for everything. I understand uh, there's a strategy behind it. Listen to what Jared Bernstein says. Cut to. I would look at the following variables, which happens to be the same ones that the group I was just talking about. Retail sales, uh, payroll employment, consumer spending, industrial production, all of those have not been flashing red. All of those are not in recessionary territory. Now, if you're asking me to look around a corner uh, and, and say where the economy is going to be, I got to tell you that the, everybody's crystal ball is a bit cracked right now. And yes. I think- right. So, look, I, I don't blame him for wanting to say the glass is half empty from the glass that he holds, but I I question the 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 thoughtfulness of it because the average American doesn't need to say how do I feel about this culturally, financially. That's they just know if they feel good or bad. The numbers don't lie. Yeah, I mean that's it's kind of cut and dry, and and for all the spin that a lot of White House folks are are trying to to put on this, and some of the answers that are coming out uh, from Democratic candidates and the administration. You know, when asked about when does the Inflation Reduction Act actually reduce inflation, uh, the answer from Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado is, well, it won't kick in for some time. <laughs> well, that's, that's, not, that's right. not the answer that you need no. if you're looking at your bills at the kitchen table. And so I think there is a problem. And, and the biggest problem is that on economy, jobs, inflation – uh, overall, those issues, which are the top by far, Republicans have 20, 30-point advantages in almost every poll. That's not four or five. That's not two, three. That's 20 and 30 points. So the one thing I hear and I see in most rankings of the big issues are democracy. People are concerned about the democracy, election integrity. And as I am more impressed with Kari Lake than any new politician so far this cycle. I mean, I've watched her in contentious interviews on our channel. And I've watched her on other channels. But this is the one area where I think she made a mistake, or at least I can't agree. Cut 16. Will you accept the results of your election, Ms. Lake? I'm, I'm running against a twice-convicted racist who cost the state taxpayers $3 million because of her hatred for people of color. 
She paid a woman of color in her office $30,000 less than men doing the same job. Last week, we learned she held a slave auction, a mock slave auction in high school. We saw her running from a black reporter hiding in the bathroom from him. I'm not going to lose this election. And she went on and said, but are you going to accept it? So if she loses, she will not say whether she accepts it or not. That gets that gets me as an American worried. Go ahead, do your research, make sure your precincts are correct, make sure you feel good about it the best you can. You got a lot of money, get some good attorneys just to make sure the things run up and up, just like we have instant replay in baseball, even soccer now. I get it. But I don't like that answer, Brett. Yeah, I agree with you, Brian. I mean, I think she could have said yes if there are no problems and it's a determined to be a free and fair election. I'm going to accept any results, but I'm going to win. You know, I mean, hit it again that you're going to win. But she wanted to get in the stuff about, you know, all that stuff about her candidate for yeah. to try to get black votes against her, her opponent. Um, but the bottom line is that she, prior to the primary, said that there was fraud uh, brewing in that election. But then she went on to win the primary, and we never heard about what the fraud was. Uh, there wasn't a problem with it. So. You have to instill some confidence in the system uh, at some point, and you can say that we have to be better. We yeah. have to do things that are better, but uh, the confidence in the system is important. I do agree with you, though, that she is a very effective candidate as far as on the stump. Uh, obviously, her time as a TV anchor and speaking in front of a camera has helped her, uh, but uh, some of those answers when it comes to the legitimacy of the election are – you know, an issue for a lot of folks. Katie Hobbs' decision not to debate and the reasons behind it are so ludicrous. It makes it, it I think it's going to single-handedly give the election to her, but I think she's so talented and does know the issues inside and out and does work extremely hard. So uh, I want to go to a couple other things. Brett, um, over the weekend I had a chance to talk to Gary Kasparov on One Nation. As you know, how connected he is to this Russian government while he sits out here and respected and smart he is as a chess champion. He believes this is the way this war is heading, and he believes that Putin is, and his government are about to collapse. Cut 22. There's people around him that some of you have speculated they'll make a move because Vladimir Putin's army has performed so bad, the humiliation's been so great. How close do you feel Russia is to a revolution in their government, to the collapse of their government? Uh, I don't know about revolution. I would rather deal with the word collapse. Because what we can see now happening on the, on the battlefield is it's, 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 it's the all indications about about this uh, imminent collapse. I think by next spring, Ukraine will be fully liberated, uh, including Crimea and and the. Uh, you think Ukraine is going to get back everything, including Crimea? Yes, of course. That's that's the only definition of victory. A- anybody who tells you otherwise, you know, is trying to save Vladimir Putin. And he went on to say when Russians lose a war, they don't keep their government, which will be chaos. Have you heard this other places? Because we try, we desperately try to get insight onto Vladimir Putin's stability as a person and in power. Yeah, I've heard a lot of hope that that happens. I have not heard concrete uh, action inside the Russian government. And, and Putin keeps a lot of people at more than arm's length, uh, you know, a long dining room table's length away um, and has sprinkled a lot of loyalists uh, in key positions. But uh, I, I do think that there's a lot of angst about what's happening. As far as Ukraine getting back everything by the spring, I think that's ambitious as well. I know that 
Europe is very concerned about just getting through the winter. Uh, and their ideal was that you know, Ukraine could push Russian troops out um, by the end of November uh, to try to get the energy situation figured out. But that's uh, ambitious, too. Um, I, I think we, we're in for a long haul here from people I talk to. And, um, and while the U.S. continues to pile in money and supplies, uh, there's no sense that Ukraine's stopping uh, to negotiate. And there's no sense that Russia's stopping as of yet. Uh, Brad, I thought you're, you're, I've been playing all the time. Your interview with David, uh, with David Priest was uh, so important. He was one of the 50-plus CIA intelligence agents who said that this was the laptop, Hunter Biden's laptop, was classic Russia's disinformation. The social media companies followed in suit and banned everybody from writing this story and froze any account that retweeted this story. Here's a little of that exchange. Do you regret signing on to the letter? Oh, absolutely not, because Why? those words are still true. Do you think it has all the classic the earmarks. Of election? Oh, absolutely not. No, this Even is. No, it wasn't true. No. It had the classic earmarks, but it wasn't true. What is not true? That it was Russian disinformation. That's not what we said in the letter. Read the actual letter, and we said we do not know if this is Russian disinformation. It has right? all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Exactly. The I difference between an information campaign and a disinformation campaign and a misinformation campaign. It's Hold not on. my fault the if people nuance. don't look up definitions. I so I, I, it was maddening. He signed off on something so impactful and acted like it was no big deal. Yeah, the tough part was is that just to listen to that and to say that they didn't think that it was going to have some big impact, the candidate himself used it in the debate as a definitive pushback to any questioning about the laptop. And then that exchange became the hinge point for social media companies and others to say, oh, it's Russian disinformation. We're going to block it. We're not going to cover it. And that is two weeks before the election. So to say that that didn't have an impact. I mean, everybody, I could have gone down that road another five minutes, but I figured at that point it was fairly. Oh, no, you did great. It was perfect. And what, you know, listen, the beginning of the, the beginning of the interview, you're using his intelligence background, you're, you're asking him uh, inside and then said, by the way, why would you ever sign someone as qualified as you with a reputation you obviously are proud of? Why would you put it all on the line? And the thing is this, I thought about this as a step back. All right, it's not classic Russian information. They admitted they were wrong. New York Times, Washington Post admitted they were wrong. You know who they were duped by? Not by the Chinese or the North Koreans. They were duped by a guy in a crack and uh, a crack induced stupor, dropping off a laptop to a independent computer repair shop. So it's either the sophistication of a Russian cyber team, or a crackhead son of a presidential candidate that that threw off. These 51 CIA experts who we spent good taxpayer money training, including, I think, four directors from Hayden to Brennan to Panetta. I mean, think yeah. about that. I know. And to sign on to something so definitive, so close to an election, not having definitive word or even really evidence that it wasn't true uh, is really uh, – you know, it, it factors in to their look, their their partisanship, uh, looking at that election. And, you know, I, there's people on that list that I respect a lot. I mean, Leon Panetta, I think, is a, a straight shooter for the most times. I, I think it's disappointing that he signed that letter. 
and others have been far more partisan in their their outlook about things. Um, but looking back, that was a big, big mistake. Hayden worked for Bush, but uh, an anti-Trumper. I always liked him when he was here since his stroke. I haven't seen him. Uh, and then John Brennan, we know he's a partisan actor. And Leon Panetta, we know he's a former Republican turned Democrat, CIA director, uh, worked for two administrations. Uh, Brett, you, so you'll ask anybody, any of those 51 that pop up on your show, you're going to ask? Yeah, I don't know how many are going to pop up after the <laughs> recent interview. But, what was uh, it like after? Was he mad at you after? He was a little heated, um, but he, you know, he stood by it and said, um, I defend it. Uh, I just don't know how defensible it is. It was uh, whatever it takes to make sure Donald Trump is not president uh, again. Brett, I uh, look forward to your show tonight. Um, anything special? Because I had Dana Prino on here Friday. Didn't mention her Sunday special. I took a personal <laughs> affront to that. Is there any special that's coming up uh, that I might need to know about? We are three weeks from the election tomorrow. Okay. And uh, so we're going to be delving into some races really intently. And we're going to be taking the show on the road here pretty soon uh, to some of these states. I know. We're getting you with the maps, full body shots. You know it's important if we're seeing Brett Bear's <laughs> you know full body. Important. <laughs> Absolutely. But I can see your legs. Uh, Brett, thanks so much. We'll see you. You got it. When we come back, it's all. we're going to find out there's indeed more to know. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Over the past few months, this bipartisan committee has presented our case to all Americans. Whether you're a Republican who's not watching or a Democrat who's nodding so hard, your head is falling off. (laughs) One person is responsible for this insurrection, Donald Trump. And one person will suffer the consequences, me. (laughs) You might be wondering what makes me so tough. And I ask you, who is your dad? (laughs) Is it Dick Cheney? (laughs) You might wonder, how do you have the guts to take on your entire party alone? And I'd say, when you were little, who tucked you in at night? Dick Cheney. I thought it was kind of funny. But I could not believe, well, I watched the Sugar Tour Sevenopolis, and I think most of the show started with January 6th, which is crazy because nobody cares about January 6th to lead your Sunday show with it, a once-a-week show. Number two, Saturday uh, Night Live opened up with it, but they didn't just bash Trump uh, for a change, and they just, uh, they have this thing where they have women dressed like men. Uh, and men dress like well, I don't get it. Um, but let's find out if there's even more to know. More to know. Kanye West agrees to buy Parler. Oh, that is bizarre. Do, who watches? Who's even on Parler? They took it off the platform for a while. Now it's back. So let's see if he's going to make it big. He could. Everything else he did with Tucker is fine. The anti-Semitism stuff, I have no, I have no patience for. I think it's going to be hard for him to shake that off. But I think he got one thing. He can knuckle under or go forward and further explain himself. Now you can uh, set up a Parler account and see, uh, you know, and, and go on that platform. Now. Fifty-six million. It's been uh, reported that Parler has raised upwards fifty-six million in funding to get the site back up, but they need an infrastructure. Next, Britney Spears issues a message of support for Iranians fighting for freedom. Good job. It's one Joe Biden saying the pop star's husband, Iranian American model Sam Ascari, my favorite Iranian male model, has been speaking out about the deadly demonstrations since last month. 
and he tweeted her death sparked a nationwide protest of this one woman, Amini, that was killed because her hijab was off. Human rights groups estimated more than 200 people have been killed just because they wanted to demonstrate. Where are the women's groups on this? I don't understand where Jill Biden is on this. Why not get together with all the first ladies? So yeah. who's your number two Iranian-American model? Well, um, the rankings come out on Tuesday. Oh, okay. So I don't want to blow it. So uh, there's a coach's poll, too. So there's a coach's <laughs> poll and my poll. And a margin Next. of error of plus or minus Rupert Murdoch is considering reuniting News Corp and Fox companies, which are split in 2013. They're constantly pursuing ways to enhance, uh, according to... Uh, spokesperson Robert Thompson in a memo. Uh, uh, News Corp is constantly pursuing ways to enhance our performance and expand our business. However, I would like to stress that the special committee has not made any determinations yet. I'm not sure what it means. I consider us all one company anyway. There's no better company in the world than Fox, and I say that unbiasedly. I try back here to look at this as two separate companies. Like, I don't want to associate with Eric. So on this side of the room, it's another company than right. Eric works. I have news for you. He works for your company, but I know what you're trying to do create a division within the show that doesn't exist because you think a divided show is a better show yes okay only with me and eric yes uh me and uh, allison will get along still under your mission yeah i think you guys do good brian kill me joe keep it here From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.